0: Welcome back to Silver on the Sage podcast. I'm Caitlin Lowe, your host, and this is episode nine. In this episode, we get to talk with Tom Munch, who is um, a bit of a legend at Philmont for his music um, and also uh, now for his stories. Tom Munch was a ranger in 1978. And again, he was a ranger in 1979. And then in 1980, he was a program counselor at Beaubien. Uh, This is a really fun episode with um, different dynamics and stories and f- focusing on giving back um, and how Philmont connects us all as a community in so many different ways. So I hope you enjoy um, let's kick it off. Hi Tom, how are you doing?
1: Doing great. Good to see you this morning. Um, yeah. Uh, just had the second COVID shot, and arm's not sore anymore, and I'm r- raring to go.
0: That's fantastic to hear. I'm glad to hear that. And you're coming from beautiful Colorado, is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm down in southern Colorado, west of Pueblo and Pueblo West. Obvious name. Um, yeah, and it's <laughs> sunny day, lots of wind. Unfortunately, today not as bad as it's been, and just getting over some snow. So yeah, it's typical kind of late winter, early spring in Colorado.
0: Awesome. Well, I wish I were there. We are finally getting some sunshine here in the Midwest in Iowa. So the snow is finally melting. Uh, I think spring's on the horizon. Um, But I just am really excited that you have joined me this Saturday morning. And um, let's just start off with how you got to Philmont, basically.
1: The most interesting thing about my story is really that you know, my family has been in that area since 1930. My grandfolks uh, actually were teachers, and, and, and a friend of theirs had told them how wonderful it was in the Merino Valley in an area called Lakeview Pines. And so they were in Oklahoma, and they wanted to get the heck out of hot, dusty, dry Oklahoma. And so in 1930, they came out, and they bought a little tiny bit of land that they could afford on on teacher salaries. And uh, they would spend the summer um, when my granddad wasn't doing um, when he wasn't doing military stuff because he was in the reserves uh, or else was teaching in the summer. Sometimes they would come out and spend the whole summer in New Mexico and do whatever odd jobs. And like my mom was a a guide, used to guide horse trips up from that area up to Blue Lake, you know, the low wheeler which at the time was still open. It was before they turned it back over to the Pueblo uh, tribe in the seventies. And so they were out there all the time and got to know all the locals and all the people who knew so much, although they didn't know the Phillipses at all. In fact, I don't even think unless you were from Cimarron that you're even aware that, you know, some rich oiler had bought a bunch of land and it had all that land around there. They might've been, but they didn't talk about it much at all. And, uh, so that was through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, late 60s. My brother goes to Philmont because we were all we were all in scouts. My sisters are in Girl Scouts and the boys are all in Boy Scouts. And so my brother went to Philmont. That was probably about 65. I'm not sure the exact year. And he fell in love with it and he worked at the council camp in Grand Island, Nebraska, since we're Nebraska folks here today. And
0: uh Yeah. <laughs> and
1: and then when he could get on at Philmont, he got hired on at Philmont. And I think it was I want to say it was 67, but that's the year he graduated from high school. It might have been 69. And so that was really our first real exposure to Philmont, other than as we would drive through to go to the cabins in in uh in west of Eagle Nest there, we would see the sign that said Philmont Boy Scout Ranch. And we just thought it would be, you know, some little council camp. We didn't realize it was a big deal until my brother went to it. And then it was like, wow. Although back in that day it wasn't, you know, quite as much land, especially as it is now. And so, as a kid, I would have actually go over to Belmont with my brother, and he was he was on the PTC side, and so he would had a bunch of kids, and I'd go over, and I would take program with the kids, and we'd make like plaques with gun bullet shots in them, you know, and like a distressed wanted poster or something. And we do all kinds of fun things. When I was a little, little, we'd go ride at the polo grounds. They used to have ponies. And so they'd let the kids go ride and I'd go over and I'd ride for the afternoon or something. Sometimes when my brother was there. I don't think he took me on the rides, but somebody who was responsible. And so I got to know the PTC side and didn't know much about the other side, a whole lot. Um, so then my brother ended up there, I think four or five years, uh, summers, Um, At the end of it, he was backcountry trading post manager. Um, Not at a trading post, but responsible for the distribution and stuff. And he got my sister hired on, Carol, who was one of the first rangers the second year they had female rangers. And... So she had that. I'm trying to think of years. 72, maybe. So, and then she got my other sister hired on in 75 as a ranger as well. Actually, I think she started a awesome. Trading Post on the camping side. But and my sister Carol was really outgoing. She liked to Ranger Marathon and was just real. and and all the women who started out there as rangers, especially, were just really outgoing, really outstanding women. So, so and then my other sister got hired on, and so then I I you know I was. I was a fairly athletic kid. You know, I was in, I tried out for track and I was in wrestling and a few things, but I was not real outgoing. I I did a lot of music, which which was wonderful. And then it was the summer of uh, 77 when my, I had gone on a, on one of these school trips to Europe, which was a big deal at that time. And when I got back, my sister said, Hey, um, do you want to be in a Auto program there? There, you know, I can get you into a crew with a -A 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 couple other little brothers And this would have been in August of 77. And so I said, I guess, I mean, I had, I had hiked before and I'd hiked a lot out there, but not, I wasn't real athletic. And in fact, um, I had first gone up Baldy when, when I was six because we wow. knew the mootses who had the land on the other side of baldy and we could drive jeeps my grand my dad had a bronco and my granddad had an old Willie's jeep that was you know army surplus and we'd drive up to the base of baldy on the west side and then as kids we'd run up the top and here'd be these scouts you know who had just sweated and died coming up from baldy town or from french and we just and here's a six-year-old kid just running around like it's no big deal and they're going <laughs> how is this possible That this six-year-old made it up yeah. here? and we almost died getting up you know baldy <laughs> And we had gone all over that area. There's some beautiful places up above Angel Fire that goes up towards Apache. And so anyway, point is, I'd, I'd hiked a lot in there. I mean, heck, when we were seven or eight, I think was the first time we went up Wheeler, where we would go up through the wow. Woods and camp as a whole big group of extended, you know, cousins and, and family, and then hike up to the top of Wheeler. Although it's funny. I mean, you know, if you've hiked enough mountains that sometimes the map doesn't really agree with where you think things are. And so we went, we'd go around the side of Wheeler and go to Old Mike, which was around the other side of it. And we thought that was Wheeler, like the first three times we went up it until we finally looked at the map and went, no, that's Wheeler up there. And, you know, (laughs) we didn't realize there was a, you know, a a thing on top that you could unscrew and write your name in it that said Wheeler Peak with the benchmark and the whole thing. Anyway, so point being, I had hiked some, but when the Rhiado thing came up, I thought, what the heck, you know? So, uh, that Rayado was amazing. And it, and it just, because I was a little brother, it gave me this, this, uh, this in with all the other guys, you know, where suddenly sure, yeah. hey, he's, he's cool. Cause he's a little brother, you know, and, and he's capable yeah. because he's as cool as his sisters or his brother is. So Rayado was just this huge thing. I, I mean, I, and some of my best stories are from Rayado in 77. Um, you know, we did a gut buster. We were going to go, at the time, the north northernmost camp was line was uh was, oh, it was Dan Beard, and then line camp, and they were both um uh not staff camps, you know non staff camps, and uh, in fact, ne- I think neither of them were even at camp at the time, but we didn't make it that far in our gutbuster. We went from oh gosh, I think we went from Poneel to Crater. I think, which was still like 45 miles. So that was one of those days when it was unbelievable. And we, we camped like on the Baldy Saddle. That was really cool. I'm trying to remember yeah. some of the other cool things we did in a route or like we skinny dipped in the Riotto And I wrote down some notes. <laughs> I can't remember what all of them were. But so anyway, point being, Riotto was just and this how, outstanding uh, thing. Yeah.
0: And how old were you then when you did I that? I would have been 16. Yeah. 16 years old. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And, I, and
1: I tell you, Riato messed me up big time. I stretched out the tendons of my knees so bad that I couldn't walk without a limp for like three months. And I couldn't run for six months after I got back from Philmont. And I didn't, it didn't hurt me at the time, but man, when I got back, uh, so I, that's like wow. the only C I got in high school because I, I got, you know, an average grade in gym because I couldn't, I couldn't participate. I was so <laughs> mad, you know, I was like, I got to be average No. <laughs> anyway, um, so that was 77 and then 78- okay. Um, maybe 78 is when I went on the trip to Europe. Yeah, 78 is when I went on the trip to Europe. And when I got back from that, my sister said, they need rangers. It was like, end of June, would you like to be a ranger? And I said, sure. So I came out and I've got a real like lightning fast training. I didn't get to go through all the ranger training, which is too bad because I didn't know anybody in my crew as a result. Um, and then I did the rest of that summer. My sister was a mountain trek coordinator. And so I did some mountain trek, uh, rangering with her as well as regular rangering too. Uh, but they kind of eased me into it since I hadn't gone through the whole thing. But but I, I did pretty well at it. Um, it was a great first year. I uh, took to hiking with my guitar. I had a full-size Martin Sigma, which was the a Japanese made Martin in a hard shell case and I was so proud of that thing because I'd gotten it just to go to Europe because I needed a hard shell case so it wouldn't get messed up on the plane. And so yeah. I thought, what the heck, I'll just strap that to back of my back of my Kelty pack and I'll carry this. And I was like hundred and thirty five pounds. I was a little skinny kid and here I am with this huge pack. And I'd come over the turnstile uh or from the ranger tent city, which used to be right next to where the buses were and all the, you know, the campers would be away in their packs and they were so proud of their pack. Mine's 35 pounds. And then I'd come over with this guitar and they're like, man, look at our ranger. What's he carrying? Can we weigh your pack, Mr. Ranger, sir? No, 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 it's okay. No, let's weigh it. Well, you know, rangers don't carry anything. We don't have to carry any food. A lot of us only carried a fly at the time, not even a tent, no stove, you know, so we'd have our sleeping bag and a fly and like one change of clothes, if even that, and a flashlight and a water bottle. So, you know, our packs, weighed nothing, but you put the guitar on it and it was like a 45, 50 pound pack. And they were like, <laughs> woo, our Ranger it's cool. So yeah. anyway, so I'm going on and on as I, as I will, as we talk. But so that was 78, 79 back for a Ranger and did the full season. And then I wanted to get in the back country because I, I would, since I carried my guitar everywhere with me, I kind of ticked off some of the back country camps because I'd come rolling in and, the, and because of my older sisters, they all knew me. So all the CDs were like, yeah, play in our campfire. And, the, you know, the guys on the staff were like, who's he? Why is he playing her at a campfire, you know? And and I was pretty good. So sometimes I'd show them up and they didn't like that. And I was kind of cocky. So, <laughs> you know, but I, I'd try to be nice. But anyway, so I played at a lot of camps. Um, like I did Cypher Stomp a couple times with the guys when Mark Rome was there. And uh, these are names that you're not going to know, but they may be guys I nominate if, if you want to do future of my Absolutely. Era, uh, interviews.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Anyway. So um, I played at a bunch of those camps. So I wanted to get in the back country. So I, I, I applied for Bobie in 80 and I got it. And it was like, wow, this is like, to me, this was like the camp other than cripple Creek. Cause I wanted to be a mountain man in the worst way. I had all this mountain man clothing and stuff. In fact, um caitlin's dad john and i were in a band a duo called rendezvous in college and we would dress like mountain men things like for our posters and stuff and i played banjo and guitar and mandolin and john played guitar and so that was kind of our thing we even went to a couple mountain man rendezvous so we could you know take pictures and stuff for it have you ever seen those posters
0: I have. Oh, yeah. I grew up looking at those, and they always <laughs> a- accompanied the stories my dad would tell about Philmont. And oh, See, gosh. here I am. And so it was fantastic. And you said, um, you said Cripple Creek. Was that, bla- what camp was that at the time?
1: It was Cripple Creek. It was Mountain Man, Isn't it? it's not Mountain, Mountain Man is- now?
0: Is it Crooked Creek or?
1: No, Cripple Creek. Cro- Cripple Creek uh, is yeah. above Crooked Creek. It's, it's right at the oh. base on the west side um, going up Phillips. It's the okay. last well, no, actually I'm trying to think. Without looking Clear at the map, Creek? I always forget. Clear what oh I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Cripple okay. Creek. That's okay. Of course. See this is it's what okay. happens when you're almost sixty. <laughs> it's
0: Clear okay. Creek. It's good. Yes. Clear, Creek. Clear Creek. Okay. So you were Hoping maybe to be at Clear Creek, but ended up at Bobeun, which was second best or just well, as good.
1: Well, I may have applied for Bobion that year. I can't remember. Um, I wanted to do Clear Creek. In fact, the next year is when I applied for Clear Creek, and then they wanted another cowboy camp, and so they stuck me at Poneal. And I said, "Uh-uh, I'm not coming back if you put yeah. me at Poneal, which is not nice because yeah. <laughs> is a nice camp, and I've seen people do wonders with it. But it, it was too close to base, and it was too hot. I didn't want to be at a hot camp. But Bobeun yeah, yeah. was wonderful, and gosh, I spent like two months at the university of Nebraska where I was going has a wonderful historical library and I must've spent two or three months that spring scouring every old cowboy, you know, stories and music books. And I learned just a ton of the really old stuff from the cattle drives and right around the turn of the century back to 1880. And so I went out there just firing off with all of these old, old cowboy songs and we did a lot of new stuff too, but it was so much fun. And, and, what a lot of the current folks may not know in my era, I've often said, if you had one guitar, you had a campfire. If you had one guy who could play, if you had two guitars, you had the best campfire on the ranch because nobody played instruments back then. A lot of guys could sing, and some of them could play like the spoons and you know harmonica or something, but not like today when you got full bands. You know, at so many of the right. camps were just really talented people. I mean, we would take goofy names sometimes just for the fun okay. of it, nicknames, but we didn't dress in period clothing. You know, we wore jeans and we wore, you know, whatever shirts we pick up the Western wear store and whatever hat. I mean, like one of my favorite guys at our camp, his name was Devin, but we called him Grinner because he always grinned at everything. He's always, he never knew if he was mad or happy. He was usually happy and he was always grinning. He had a hat that was like blue. It was like slate blue or something. So, you know, it it wasn't authentic cowboy stuff. Yeah. Um, we just had whatever <laughs> we picked up at Solanos and Raton. That was, you know I, I had yeah I had the goofiest hat. Oh my God. I bought this thing in seventy eight. It was I'd seen it. it, Did you go to Solano's at all in Raton when you were there? Yes, Yeah, that is like the best Western wear store in the entire West. And real cowboys from the Northeast New Mexico shop there. And they got all the hats. Used to have all the way around on the walls of all the old ranchers who'd given their hats that were all sweat stained. So cool.
0: So cool, yeah.
1: (laughs) And Ralph was there at the time who unfortunately is not, not with us anymore. But he, I remember I looked at a hat up on the wall and I was looking at the shape. And he had had this hat shaped in a really nice Montana, what they used to call a Montana Peak style, where it comes down in the front with a crease instead of being flat or going back. And uh, now they call it the Gus because Gus had it in Lonesome Dove series. Oh, um, yeah. But I saw that, and that's that's the style I wanted. And so he brings it out, and you know, he always had he would bring out the hat that was unblocked and unshaped, and it was this huge hat at a six inch brim, and I said. I didn't mean the huge hat. He said, well, that's what it, that one is. Well, can we cut down the brim then? He said, oh, no, you don't want to cut down a brim on a six-inch hat. You want to wear it all. So I ended up with a <laughs> six-inch brim hat that was so big that when it would rain, it would go down over your ears because it'd weigh like 20 pounds. It was unbelievable. And Kurt Rome had the same one. So I, I thought I was cool because I had the same hat as him. And he had a, a bumper sticker or a sign or something that said, bigger the hat, better the cowboy. So I had that hat. It was, <laughs> it was so cool. I still have it. I got torn up in a tornado um, in Grand Island in 81, but uh, Ralph fixed it for me at Solano's. And so I still have it. It doesn't fit anymore. It really hurts to put on, but it's fun to... Say this you is a piece of film hunt for me, along with my spurs and my rope that I had at Bovian. We did rope tricks. Did you do rope tricks there? Uh,
0: yes, we did. And my dad had his rope forever. He probably still has it. And um, I now, you know, now they kind of outfit the PCs. So you you go into it. the backcountry warehouse, and but I, I imagine it was probably fun to to go and customize and kind of pick out your own garb for the summer, um, and just well, kind of.
1: But most guys just had what they had. I mean, they just said bring you know Western shirts and jeans and a hat. They didn't. Yeah. There wasn't any. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah, now that you've got a whole warehouse of stuff and people can get outfitted and the, and it's all a really cool old style cowboy stuff. If, that stuff wasn't even around back then unless you made it yourself. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: What was um, so? What was something that maybe surprised you uh, about working in the backcountry or a perspective of your job that uh, was? was interesting or maybe challenged you at, at Bobien or, or or as a Ranger.
1: Hmm. You know, I, th- I think Ranger got me more into this kind of headspace that Philmont represented to me because I you know when a Ranger would drop off his crew after the second day the hike-in day, which you could either do real fast and get back into base so you could run over to Taos or Red River or whatever you wanted to do. Because back then, all of us, when nobody stayed on base. Everybody would go to Santa Fe or whatever. I mean, like we would drive all the way to Santa Fe just to get a McDonald's burger because that was a big yeah. deal, you know. But um, <laughs> yeah. but on the day-in, the hike-in days, oh, man, some of those days... Had some of the greatest times, you know. Just stopping, you know, like at Wild Horse Meadow, if I had gone up that direction. Or I didn't do as much, and I wished I would have hiking to other camps and spending a night with them. Although we, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was the same way when you were there. We had this really, really nice ethic that we would go into a camp and we would, you know, chop firewood. We'd wash dishes. We'd clean cabins. We'd do whatever, you know, because we appreciated letting them, letting us stay with them and and getting to see them and spend time with them. I didn't do that as much as I wanted to, but man, those hiking days—if I wasn't in a rush to get in—I just wonderful, wonderful. So I think what struck me the most about Philmont was that solitude and that just the gumption. I mean, that's, I was kind of trying to get that across when I was talking about Ray Otto in the first year. I was the kind of kid who was, I was just not that outgoing. I mean, I, I was, but I wasn't that capable and Philmont just, it just infused me with this, you know, I can do anything, you know, it's, it's, you know, thinking about, thinking about doing all the crazy stuff we did on Ray Otto. you know, you just, when you're a kid, you, you, you have something to prove, but you don't really know who you are and you don't really know how capable you are if you really try. And if you have just a little bit of talent or a little bit of gumption, it's just amazing how far you can go. And I think, you know, that's one of those things that probably surprised me as much as anything. You're in amongst a lot of people, a lot of other kids who are really sharp, who have a lot of talent, who have respect for you and will let you be, you know, whoever you want to be. And they, there's some competition and there's some other, you know, just kind of general jostling around with each other. But boy, yeah. You just really feel this, you know, this this wonderful spirit of of you know, can do and of uh, caring about each other and you know, and it's part of it's being that age, you know. You get the same thing in college to some extent where you just, you know, the world's our oyster. We just gotta go out and take it. And that's that's the feeling of film up. But you combine that with the solitude and the beauty. And that just that rugged, you know, I've got everything I need on my back kind of thing, you know, it's just it it's just wonderful. So I Yeah. And I would again I didn't get that as much from being a PC at n Um we were talking yesterday a little bit, you and I, about some of the neat things about being a Bob N. Like I would go on early morning walks with with my friend Grinner, I mentioned before.
0: Cause your camp director.
1: Well, he was on, yeah, if we were on KP, it was you had to be up early uh, mopping out all of the latrines. Yeah. That was a big deal. He really was a stickler for keeping that place clean and sweeping the, the trapper's lodge. Did you call it trapper's lodge still?
0: Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, sweeping off the, making that thing clean and we just, we can look clean continuously and, Oh, Oh, I still have a, I was thinking about this and stuff I wanted to tell you about Bobby and, uh, when Cliff Wagey decided that he didn't like that you couldn't see out from the the front porch of the Trapper's Lodge, because he'd been there in the 50s and the little the pine trees in the front were low enough you could see over the top of them. He's asked somebody to cut them all the way up to eye level. And that's why those trees are lollipopped at the top where they don't have any branches <laughs> until they get up and then they're lollipopped. We were so mad oh at him gosh. because, you know, all those trees that were so old and, he, and it's okay. You know, you do what you got to do. But um, anyway, as I was sweeping the porch, I was thinking about how mad you were when he cut those trees. Um <laughs> but some of those early mornings, gosh, you go walking up to the upper part of the meadow or down to Burn Meadow, and I was telling you yesterday, the dew had fallen heavy in the morning, and we'd be walking, getting our boots and our our jeans all wet, and you know, talking about all kinds of things. I was I was kind of a spirituality on the spirituality kick back then, and so we'd talk all kinds of really deep stuff that you do when you're that age, and you still do when you're older too. But we would have these really deep talks. And we'd see, like on the on the thistles and stuff, that the bees had like slept overnight, uh, and were all covered with dew, and just those kind of you know in the mornings, Boby and were just gorgeous, you know, before the sun had peeked out over, and uh, that that kind of stuff sticks with me um, a lot. Um, going and sitting in burn meadow, I, my song "Leaving Boby" talks about the beauty of burn meadow, or or the lower part of that when the, the cattle had come up or if you got a chance to get down to the lower part, uh, towards that one line camp, it was just such a cool area. And, and so old westy. you know, just felt so much like this is where the cowboys really, you know, did stuff because they did in that area. There were, you know, that wasn't upper pasture to, you know, drive cattle up into up the Ray Otto. So anyway.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you've mentioned your camp director and was there any other, Anybody else that was in, in, in a supervisory role or just someone that you really looked up to or really inspired you while at Philmont?
1: Oh gosh, I mean tons of people, you know I mean, when I was in the Ranger department, uh, the the assistant chief Rangers um, or the chief Ranger, you know they were all inspiring. They had to they had to reprimand me a few times because I would do some really squirrely things like leaving a, leaving my camp at lovers. Uh, for my campers who I thought were so capable and going up to the Christmas party at Crater and getting cussed out by the chief ranger because some other ranger had to help him put their bear bag up and I slept on the roof at Crater in the morning is to tell Tom Munch not to even go anywhere even to cross the road to hear the chickens cluck. He stays with his crew. You know? <laughs> I was I was so embarrassed. But anyway, no they were so good to me. The rangers were wonderful. A lot of the other rangers um, my, my, you know, it's funny, my CD and I got along, but he was in a weird headspace too. And we got together a couple summers ago. We both ended up down there at the Dam Meadow, which is uh, the other side of the Eagle Nest Dam to hear uh, the Rifters play, who's uh, a lot of, you know, Rye Taylor, and that's his dad's uh, trio. And we went to hear them. I had actually played at the same dance kind of party earlier. And so uh, my friend, uh, the CD showed up and, uh, gosh, we had a great talk, great, great time together, but no, I, so many people, you know, a lot of the other Rangers, uh, people like Warren Smith, and I'm trying to remember who he was with in roving Rangers. Shoot. Oh, I should know. Um, but you know, that's the thing. You have respect for just about everybody, unless they're so weird and so far out that you can't, you know, and, and again, there's that jostling and kind of competition. So there were a few people that, and because I was a little brother too, there were a lot of, you know, my sister's friends who I didn't really feel comfortable with because they were two or three years older than me, but they always treated me with respect. Like there was a guy, Gary Rose, everybody called Roper. And he was just the craziest Texan you've ever met who, when he would hike, he always uh, would carry a, a day pack on top of his pack that was his overload sack, and he always would have. He was he always wore Converse All Stars to hike in because nobody, you know, they weren't they weren't light hiking shoes. So if you didn't want to hike in your boots, you hiked in tennis shoes, whatever you had. And uh, and he and I would have a starting camp together. They used to have a, a really crazy um, North Country uh, itinerary that they stopped doing because it was too much. That was from Maxwell Starting Camp. And there was the hardest, the hardest opening thing was called a max to max, where they had their first night at Maxwell starting camp. And this is way below like Miranda. And then that they were supposed to actually, and this is way too much to ask, but they were supposed to do the sunrise hike to Baldy the very next day on the trail. So, and we would have to leave like at 3 a.m from that camp to get them all the way up to top gosh. of baldy and, and you'd have kids who were so much altitude sickness and dehydration and stuff because that was way too much and then come back down to that camp that night so that was a really oh, really gosh. hard and they stopped doing that <laughs> yeah but, but maxville starting camp and sometimes it would be it's just like a max to baldy town um and that was easier and or max to miranda even which was a piece of cake it's like a three mile hike but that was it was so much fun to be in a starting camp with somebody like Roper because we would do our own campfire that night cuz I'd be hiking with my guitar and he'd be like scaring the kids with bear calls and we'd be doing songs like slewfoot just getting the kids shouting around the campfire and then that night we'd meadow crash all of the rangers who had crews that night and we always had bears at Maxwell and so you'd hear him hit a camp and the camps were ringed around the meadow, and so you'd hear him hit a camp, you know, and somebody say, "Oh, that's that's your crew." Oh, yeah, you're right. And then you'd hear the kids, you know, all banging the pots and pans and stuff, bear. And then you'd wait yeah. like five minutes, and they'd hit the next camp, and he'd go all the way around the whole perimeter, you know, hitting every camp, and we'd just be in the middle, just laughing and thinking, "I hope they didn't lose any, you know, tents or any any packs." <laughs> but anyway, so 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 many Gosh. guys like that. And, and I could probably name you twenty or thirty guys of that era and gals too, who I just had so much respect for and, and and you know enjoyed their friendship. And the neat thing is here we are 40 years later and I've maintained friendships with a lot of them. Although my very best friends, like my my uh my tent mate when I was a ranger who was also in her auto with me, um, we haven't really maintained. I've I've tried to reach out to them, but over the years we just you know, he hasn't responded or it just hasn't worked out. And it's too bad because we did get together several times after Philmont and, and we're really close and I don't know whatever happened, but, you know, so you lose a few friends that you really loved and, and a lot of others, you just maintain this really, you know, strong respect for it grows over the years as you transition to different things in your life. And you're not the young kid who was, you know, back then so anyway.
0: Yeah. I, um, I was going to ask you if I, I know you're, married today. Did you meet your wife at Philmont?
1: No, no. She is an Eastern Colorado gal from Lamar and I actually met her. She was working for the newspaper in Pueblo and she interviewed me and neither okay. of us was impressed with each other at all at the time <laughs> but then we met like two or three years later she came out with a bunch of gals to hear me i don't know if they came out to hear me play but then she hired me to be a photographer for the newspaper she was the editor of for the um for the Catholic press and we wound up dating after that marrying so she's she's fairly outdoorsy but we don't we don't backpack Together and we don't even camp that much together. She's she's definitely not a poop in the woods kind of person. If you know what I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> that's it's, okay. and that's it's fine. A, it's a
0: balance. Yeah. No,
1: and Em, I mean, she's really she's really uh, strong and and in every way capable. That's just not her thing. So it's it's okay. That's... I miss it sometimes. She always says, "You can go off and do it without me. It's okay."
0: <laughs> you could do a you could do a PSA trek someday or what yeah. have you.
1: You know, the cool thing Philmont did for me musically is some of the great music that I learned out there. There were guys like the Rome brothers, Kurt and Mark, who were from Arkansas. Um, that's also where Doc Walker was from. Um, I'm trying to remember other guys who really brought strong music um, out with them that knew great music. I mean, that that's the coolest thing about, about Philmont, in my era at least, was that there were these people who knew really cool stuff. I mean, they knew great music and they performed it all the time. And so I knew a lot of good stuff too. I was, I was really into like Michael Murphy, who is Michael Martin Murphy nowadays and John Denver, because those were the big people in the seventies and a few others who did, you know, kind of folksy kind of stuff at the time, but we weren't really into bluegrass. We weren't really into straight folk, although there was some like campfire music that everybody knew, but there were all these others like the, Oh, Ozark Mountain Daredevils and uh, some of the Texas stuff that came up and that some of that was Red River. Oh, and I'll, I have to say that influenced me as much as anything was the music that I heard in Red River and Taoist. And that's kind of the music I play to this day and kind of the reason I'm still playing and have the friends I have that are from that, that realm. So if, if, and that that built into me going and playing down there. The first year I played summers down there was 83 and I stayed at Philmont quite a bit that year with, uh, with Todd Conklin and Jeff Segler who had a a bungalow there. They were both on staff and base. Uh, Jeff was with NIS at the time and, and Todd was doing the uh, activities. Uh, And, and so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Philmont people. A lot of Philmont people of that age got to know me from that. But when I was playing over in Red River and Taos, and even Cimarron, I I got to know a lot of that music and got to, and I I loved a lot of it anyway, but that even just made it stronger. And it's a lot of the music I still do and the relationships I still have are based on that. And that grew out of Philmont. You know, I I probably wouldn't have spent, I might've, because I, you know, we spent, like I said before, Every summer we were in in that area in Eagle Nest and Taos and Red River and all of that. So even before Philmont, I had such a tie into the area that I probably would have wound up down there. And that's why I'm living in Southern Colorado, because it's the closest I can be uh, in a fairly inexpensive place to live where that's within, you know, driving shot. I'd like to be closer. And I almost moved to Santa Fe uh, a year after I moved here to Pueblo area. And I've lived in Breckenridge and I've lived in other little mountain towns around here.
0: I think I read on your website something about. Um, I think this is your quote. I'm going to quote you. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that you said, giving is one of the secrets of life. So just kind of giving back, always um, filling other people up. Um, I'm just curious have you had any, um, any, I don't want to say like youngins, but like any current or younger staff members reach out to you for musical inspiration or anything like that? Have you stayed connected in that sense?
1: Um, Josh Standard was like that. I mean, he was already, had already been there many years, but I had him over here two or three times to play places I was playing and I helped him songwrite on a few of his songs and stuff. And, uh, and um, I wouldn't say um, Tim Culver so much, but, you know, definitely when I was down there, he'd contact me and he booked me a few times at the ski area or down at the brewery and stuff. And we'd get together. And, um, I really think that there's an an energy in the universe and you can call it God and you can call it universal energy. You can call it anything, but it's something you can tap into. And when you give, you're tapping into it. And it's not that you're giving of yourself in a way that you empty yourself. It's that you're priming the pump so that you can give more and more and then you're more filled and then you give more. And so I, I have this, you know, philosophy of life that giving is, is the secret, you know, amongst other things, but it's, it's, it's really important.
0: I love that. I think that's really beautiful. I, um, so I, I want to catch up with you a little bit for, well, first of all, let's see. Um, yeah, what, what are you doing today? I know you you play a lot of shows. I know COVID has probably obviously affected that. Um, I believe you play at a senior facilities from time to time. Um, just share a little bit of that with us.
1: That's what I do full time. And if, when I'm really doing it, I'm doing probably at least... Twelve or thirteen gigs a week, sometimes more. Um, I don't do really restaurants and bars anymore. I do mostly type show kind of things, you know. And I've got a couple of duos and trios that I play in off and on. And oh yeah. Over the years I've been in a bunch of bands. I mean, I usually come back to solo because that's easier to get booked and it's
0: You um I mean, gosh, I feel like you just your repertoire is huge. You have not only songs you play, covers, um, but you have your own music. And I believe you've recorded 10 albums or more.
1: Yeah, I've got 10 albums. Um, Only two of those are all originals. Um, And then I've done a cowboy album, which is a lot of the Bobian type stuff. So, you know, talk about the influence of Philmont. Um, but I've also played at dude ranches and for old historic cowboy um, museum stuff and all kinds of things like that.
0: Well, I was just going to say, you know, sometimes I've heard, I've heard from people that, um, and maybe it's a personality thing, but sometimes I've been warned in life, like not to make your, your hobby, your job, <laughs> you know, cause it can, it can kill it for you. But it seems like you've had I mean, it seems like you've been a lifelong musician and you've had great success making it your career. Um, So what do you have anything to say to that?
1: Um, You know, my folks said the same thing, you know, and I actually was really into computers. And when I first graduated, I did not do music. I did computers uh, first in sales, and then I tried to get on with a couple of companies doing real computer stuff and I couldn't get on. And so I did music in the meanwhile and music. Was making money, and I just said, "You know what? If I can't get on with that, I'll just keep doing music." And it's never been real successful money-wise, and that's partially because I'm not a great promoter um, of myself. But it's always been fulfilling, and uh, you know, sometimes you scramble pretty dang hard. But um, I've I've always been able to make ends meet. You know, the accountant at the end of the year says, "Well, you're still in the you're still in the black." You know, so just keep going. You're you're not in the red. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you've kept going because I know a lot of people, including myself, really enjoy your music. Um, And yeah, I um, just kind of jumping back to, to, like you said, the impact Philmont had on, on your life and on music and your spirituality. um, Is there any specific story you want to share or memory or something, like you said, um, maybe something that has changed
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that we were a lot less organized back then. I'm sure (laughs) we, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, just in general, we probably did a lot of crazier things that would be frowned upon today, although I've sure heard some stories from your era too, so I don't think that that necessarily (laughs) is true. Um, Things... Things have changed in a big way. I mean, making the, the backcountry more co-ed has changed. Although it was, it, we, we had co-ed crews and we we had female Rangers. We just didn't have female backcountry staff. You know, that, that's been a change, but I don't see anything that's too different um, from the way we were back then. But, you know, I think you experience what you do of your generation. So um, it's just part of what you experience as everywhere else that you are. And so, I, I can tell you a couple other stories though that are, that were really fun. Um, um, one of the ones was that group that I said that I left him at, uh, at Lover's camp and got in big trouble for going up to the crater. Um, I, like I said, I was kind of cocky at Philmont because I had the older or older sisters. I got, I got more special favors than other guys got sometimes. And so usually I could ask for days off and would get them. But, um, I, I wanted off Christmas for some reason. And this crew rolls in and I pick him up and I say, where's your advisor? And they say, you're our advisor. And I say, what are you talking about? Well, our advisor got sick. We don't have an advisor. They told us our ranger would be our advisor and stay on the trek with us the whole time. And I'm like, no, no, no. And I go like to the chief ranger, the assistant. they like, I can't. No, you're going with him the whole time. Well, they were really sharp guys, and several of them had hiked before. They all had boots that were broken in. I didn't have to take anything out of their packs, you know, like you have to with some of them that have way too much junk they uh, they you know they they knew what they were doing. I thought this is gonna be a fun crew. You know, I'll be able to spend some time with staff and uh, these guys will take care of themselves for the most part. I won't have to babysit them, you know, which is not nice to say it that way, but that's sometimes how you feel about your campers as a ranger is like, I'm gonna have to babysit these guys to yeah. know what they're doing. They're going to get blisters. They're gonna have to worry about hypothermia, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, so these guys were cool, except for that first night when they didn't get their bear bag up and I got shamed for that but I did so many neat things with them. Like one of my favorite, um, memories of, the, of that crew. And one of them ended up Jeans Willenberg ended up on staff for several years after that. And he was, I've reached out to him several times. He doesn't respond. He's one of those guys that I'm like, come on, Gene, let's share some memories. And he doesn't anyway. So my favorite memory of them was going up Phillips. One of the cool things you could do as a ranger, and I don't know if they still do it was to, after you've been on the trail so many days, you really want Home, you know, you really want food. That you're like, you want, you want pop, you want sodas, you want Doritos, you know. And so, I had arranged to have stuff sent up to PJ to have like a watermelon and you know two six packs of pop or three six packs or a case or whatever, and several bags of Doritos, you know. And so, like, and so I pack all this. I got like 88 pounds in my pack, and I'm like, I can do this. And I hike ahead of them because I'm in shape and they're not, or at least I'm acclimated. I wind up at the top of Phillips. And I stick the, you know, the I ice the the sodas in a in a snowdrift, and everything's all hidden. And the guys get up there, and they're just dying, you know. And how did you get up ahead of us? Well, I'm used to this; it's not a big deal, you know. And so they're resting for a minute, and I've got their jackets on so they don't get hypothermia. And I say, you know, there's an old Indian legend that on a blue moon you might find like, you know, a couple six packs of. Uh, popping the snow drifts up here and stuff and they're like really yeah go look you know and they and they find this stuff and they're having a great time you know and, and then we start heading down and oh my god the the uh the trail from the top of 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 uh clear creek going to sawmill is on ridgeline a lot of it and the storm moves in over baldy and moves in on over us and there's lightning striking everywhere and i'm Yikes. just panicked and yeah. I got my guys, you know, they're all strung out, good distance between us, so we don't attract the lightning. And I'm just going, Oh man, I can just see it in the Albuquerque news tomorrow, you know, this whole crew gets struck by lightning and they blame the ranger, oh, no. you know, oh, shouldn't they no. had him up there and all this? And so so we're booking it and the lightning's striking around us and we finally get we're off the ridge and in the trees a little bit. And one of my guys who was the only kid who was a little chubby and who was the one who always kind of pulled up the rear and, you know, the one I had to work with the most and knew the other kids encouraged. I could see you starting to get blue lips and I'm going, oh my God, he's getting hypothermia. And so I stop and I quick say, you know, what's your middle name? You didn't know his middle name. He couldn't count back from 10. He was getting hypothermic and I'm just panicking. Guys, guys, lightning striking around us we've got to get around him we got to get him into dry clothes so you know we we like put a tarp over all of us and you know we're trying to get him to hear the lightning striking around us and he's like shivering and we're trying to warm him up and getting this stuff in him and i'm picturing what my one of for my friends I had to do for hypothermia you know get naked in the sleeping bag with him to warm him up and stuff and i'm thinking lightning striking and i don't want to go to that level you know and i just want to get <laughs> off here before we get killed and uh and so we made it down and it was okay, you know, and, and Gene, again, who had been, who wound up on staff years after that, he wrote me the coolest letter. He'll probably make me tear up because I love this. And this is the example of what Philmont really does for you though. Um, I get this letter like a week after they, after they go off, off track. And we had a, a great rest of the track. I can't remember any other. I mean, that was the one that really stuck with me, but I get this letter from him. Take it in real quick. Okay, and he says, You know it was a great trick, really it was really fun, you know you were a great ranger, we really appreciate you, and he said, and you know the guys really got a lot out of it. Some saw the mountains, and some really saw the mountains <laughs> and I just that you know that that little thing you yeah. know that it made, and i i I wish I could know what happened to that kid, His name was Pepper, I can't remember his last name, but i you just know that that was You just hope you don't know, but you just hope that that was the one experience in his life that, you know, made him believe in himself. And, you know, I'd I'd love to know, you know, what he wound up being, because I'm sure he's extremely successful and happy in his life. And I hope it came from that because that was, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful.
1: So do I have any other stories? (laughs) Uh, Oh, I can't remember where it was now. Um, back in the day, this is, uh, I had contacts at Fomont, which are kind of a pain to deal with on the trail. And back in the day, they didn't have gas permeable lenses. I, I've always had to wear hard ones because of astigmatism, but they didn't have gas permeable. And so they'd fit them and it was a real critical fit because they didn't, they didn't breathe. And if your eyes, if your contacts didn't fit right, it would actually allow the cornea of your, of your eye to erode. And oh. my, uh, we had an older doctor. He would fit the contacts just like it did glasses where it'd be a little undercorrected, so it'd make your eyes still work harder. Well, I didn't know it, but it was on my my eye so tightly that it actually eroded the, the cornea on my eye. And one morning I woke up with my crew and I can't remember where it was, probably because of what happened next. I, my eyes hurt so bad that I opened them a few times with my glasses on and I just had to close them. And I just, I couldn't go any farther. And it must've been a staff camp, but it was a staff camp that did not have a comm truck or anything coming up. So somebody had to actually hike me down blind, um, to the turnaround to get picked up, to go back to the health lodge, to get, you know, drops put in. And they said, you know, your eyes were so eroded that one of them could have erupted. There was that much that, you know, you could have lost your vision, but you know, being a kid, you don't know, you're not that scared of that. And I'd had other problems with my eyes. I'd had like a battery blow up in my eyes and I get acid in them and stuff when I was younger. But anyway, that experience of hiking down blind was one yes. of the neatest things. And you hate to say it because you know there are people blind from birth that deal with this all the time. And so you hate to make light of it. But the experience of feeling you you within a half hour if you're really listening you can sense when you're in the shade when you're in the sun you can sense when you need to step down you can sense when there's a tree in front of you 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 your other um, senses adapt so quickly that you get this this wonderful awareness of what's going on around you and after the person was guiding me by the arm and telling me now step down and said, you know after about 10 20 minutes i said I can see what you're seeing. You know, I can feel it. I can I can hear everything around. I can hear that there's, you know, rocks next to us. I can hear that there's a tree to the left. I can hear that we're going to step down and I can feel they're in the shade. Now we're in the sun. I can feel a little breeze. I can smell, oh yeah, I can smell there's flowers over there. You know, it was such a neat thing. And it was one of those experiences that because you're young and because you're at a place that's full of wonder, you know, at Philmont in the outdoors, you're so open to these things and how it, aff- how it affects you. So that was one of my other experiences. I just, you know, dearly loved and, and always will stick with me from Philmont. I got to have the ghost of French Henry. I got to hear him. He walked into the cabin when I was there. Didn't see him, but he walked across the cabin. I heard his footsteps across the back while I was sitting there alone, a little panicky. Hey, French, you over there? I won't. I won't. I won't do anything with you if you don't do anything with me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, cool. (laughs) And other,
1: and then you know, there's lots of stories like that. You know, skinny dipping in the Rado, or doing sweat lodges. Gosh, do they still do sweat lodges? The one that French was was great. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, The one, the one by Clear Creek was great. I don't know. I mean, it's just so many memories like that, and just the the people and the the experiences, and this the smells and the sounds, the freezing cold mornings, getting up the pack and wet stuff, you know, just all of those, all those memories, the smell of campfire, you know, one of your questions was about memorabilia. Um, you know, I've, I've got like my my Philmont red jacket, which isn't popular anymore with a bowl on it that goes over the shoulder, the tail and all that. And, you know, I've got my mugs, I don't know where they are, but I also have something I got just a few years back there in Cimarron, uh, a candle that's got a, a campfire scent. And I love to pull that thing out and just close my eyes and it takes you right, you know, right to a campfire. And anytime I'm around a campfire, I'll sit in the smoke because I love having that smell in my hair and in my clothes and my closet until I wash that shirt, you know, and it's just, it's great. (laughs) Yes,
0: that's absolutely. I, uh, gosh, I love to hear the stories. I. I'm a big journaler, so I journal a lot, and it's really fun to go back and read my read my journals because, uh, you know, now I'm a mom of three, so my brain's kind of broken. I can't remember <laughs> everything like I used to, so it's really fun to go back and read my journals, and all those details come flooding back, and um, it's just, uh, yeah, there's nothing like it. It's just a very special place, and, and lots of special people come out of it, um, and I know you... Um, One another thing you share with people these days, aside from your music, is um, your morning walks with your dog, Bo. I believe is is it a he or she? He,
1: -hmm.
0: he. Yeah, I just love your sunrise and sunset photos you share with us there on social media. And
1: that's part of the giving. It's that's you you give. (laughs) You try to give beauty, and you try to you know. I mean, sometimes you don't have time to, but if you have the time, you know, give. It feels good, and it it helps. It helps everybody else out that sees it. You know. having a bad day and they get that little bit of, you know, that, that's all it takes.
0: Absolutely. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, we could talk forever. Well, as we as we wrap up, do you want to do any nominations or just shout outs to friends or anybody who might be listening?
1: There's only a few um, that were really like in the Ranger group when I was there who I really maintain contact with. And one of the guys from Bobian, I still I still uh, regularly um, correspond with. And, um, but nominations, I don't know how many of my group would, but especially the Rome brothers, Mark or Kurt, Mark, probably be more willing than Kurt. They were such a big part of the mid to late seventies. Um, just, they're just, you know, huge personalities with big presence had always had great campfires, just crazy stuff they would do when they were at Poblano. I can remember hiking up with a crew and, one of them was hanging by his toes from the front porch or something as the crew a, a, a approached, you know, and one of the guys, Mark used to always carry around a pot of coffee with him in the morning for all the advisors and all the camps at, at uh, that was at black mountain. And Kurt wrote several great songs. And the, the one, the one about Bobie and the uh, New Mexican cowboy is just a fantastic song. And he, he always had a big influence and there's, there's several other guys like that, but if either of those guys would do, a podcast with you, I think you wouldn't regret it.
0: I know someone mentioned at the very end, if you had a favorite guitar and why, do you want to close with that? <laughs>
1: oh, well, mm, you know, I really don't, they're, which is funny. People say, don't you have like that old one that you always have that just means so much to you? And no, honestly, they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. I mean, I've had a lot of guitars over the years and, and uh, I don't really have a favorite. I wish I had my old guitar from back then. I sold it twice and got it back both times. And then the last time I sold it to a friend, (laughs) his cat knocked it off the stand and it went down the stairs and got busted up. And he just threw it away instead of trying to get it fixed. The one I hiked at at Philmont, but no, I don't, I don't honestly have a favorite. I've I've had too many over the years. Um, But uh, you know, anything that's comfortable and sweet and is easy to play. That's, that's, that's my favorite, whichever one I've got out at the moment, you know, they all become good friends.
0: Yeah. I think that's a fantastic answer. Um, I'll ask you just here, now that I'm thinking about it, do you have a favorite song that just takes you back to Philmont? One of your favorites.
1: Oh Gosh, there are too many. I actually made a list of songs that I really <laughs> loved. Um, you know, the one that Dave Goldfein wrote, Boy of the Mountains, that's a good one that expresses a lot of what Philmont's about because it talks about, you know, becoming more aware and and how the mountains do it for you boy the mountains there's so many of them that were uh, written or performed at Philmont. you know like colfax colfax county Dreamin' and the song about french henry or even the ranger song i want to go back to Philmont. Um my song reno valley takes me back but i wrote it before Philmont, so it, it has other memories for me um, the other ones i mentioned new mexican cowboy uh, the trapper's life son of doc walker song um, you know, there's one that's not a Philmont song that I've kind of taken to over the years. Um, I found it, I was doing a historic album during the, um, during the, uh, Bicentennial of Zebulon Pike coming out this way. And I found this song where I was putting together a trio. Uh, we did an album and then do it toured as part of the promotion of all of the, of all of the Bicentennial festivities. And it's called Covered Mountains and it's a really well-known british song and it's just a it's just it's wonderful because it talks about um when uh the see it's oro when shall i see them the mist covered mountains of home and it's got that home in it which got the heaven on earth which is also in my song reno valley the sunshine and pine trees are heaven on earth um and um it's got other lines about oh hold on i'll just read you a little bit of it because it's just such a special song i think I think the folks would like to hear the line from it real quick. If they don't know it, just give me a second here. I don't memorize stuff. Too many songs to memorize all of them. So again, this was just, I just happened on this when I was looking at a bunch of old songs of that era and turns out it's pretty well known there. Um, Then shall I visit the place of my birth. They'll give me a welcome. The warmest, the warmest on earth, also loving and kind, full of music and mirth in the sweet sounding language of home. Sounds like film what? Um. There shall I gaze on the mountains again, on the fields and the woods and the burns and the glens, away among the quarries, beyond human kin, in the haunts of the deer I will roam. That's Philmont. Hail to the mountains with summits of blue, to the glens with their meadows of sunshine and dew, to so the women and men, ever constant and true, ever, wel- ever ready to welcome one home. That's Philmont.
0: That's beautiful.
1: So there you go. When shall I see them? Soon shall I see them, the mist-covered mountains of home. Yeah.
0: Music is a huge part of Philmont and in different ways, um, and you're carrying that on for a lot of us. So thank you for playing, and um, we're just happy to support you in any way. We'll, I always log on to your online shows, and so I'm sure we'll we'll catch the next one, and I'll, I'll see you there. <music> to thank Tom so much for joining us on the show today. It was um, a lot of fun to chat and just to learn more about Philmont and the different ways in which it impacts us all. Um, I want to let you all know that on Facebook, this Saturday, March 13th, Tom is going to be hosting a Spring Philmont Songs concert. So you can catch him there to listen And that is, again, Saturday, March 13th at 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, And it will be hosted through Facebook. You can also, if you're not a social media user, you can also go to Tom's website, um, which is TomMunch.com, and find his online concert section and catch the show there. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoy some songs this Saturday from Tom. And as always, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.